Hello, and welcome to the Cubits podcast. My name's Tom Broughton. I'm the founder of Cubits, the modern spectacle maker. Since only my first pair of spectacles, I've been fascinated with them as objects and the way they touch on so many different disciplines. Design, manufacturing, cephalometry, optics, materiality. And in many ways for me, they've been a gateway into all sorts of other beautifully functional objects that over the years I've become obsessed with. And over the course of this series, I'll be speaking to what I like to call emotional utilitarians, people who live lives that are split between the pragmatic and the romantic. And I've asked each of those guests to bring in three objects with them that represent the emotional utilitarian, objects they couldn't live without. My first guest is Matt Gibbard, co-founder of design-led estate agency The Modern House. They curate and celebrate houses along the modernist design principles of space, light and materiality. And I'll be asking Matt whether he'd consider himself an emotional utilitarian and what the three objects he's selected from his life are. Thank you for joining us, Matt. Thank you, Tom. So we've chosen you to be our very first emotional utilitarian, someone who's conserved with the functional and the pragmatic, with just a hint of romanticism. Would you say that describes you? I think it's pretty accurate. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm all for it. Sign me up. Um, you mentioned before that your parents impressed on you the importance of having objects that were both beautiful and functional. Um, yeah. Is that something that you've taken with you through your life? Yeah, I think what you're referring to is when I was um, young, I used to go to the supermarket with my mum. And apart from decanting like, ice lollies and choc ices and stuff into the basket when she wasn't looking, we did sometimes have to go and buy something quite specific, like a toothbrush. And I remember spending a very long time in the aisle looking at different toothbrushes and frankly, the way they looked, but also the way they felt and, you know, discussing with her how, you know, how well we might feel that they would clean your teeth and so on. And I sort of reflected on that later on and thought that's probably quite unusual to do that. But my, my dad was an architect, you know, so he was a very utilitarian man as was my grandfather as well. And yes, I guess I've always subscribed to that William Morris thing of, of beauty and utility. And in fact, that, what I love about that is it goes all the way back to, you know, Vitruvius and Roman times, and he talked about strength, utility, and beauty. And, you know, Walter Gropius talks about similar kinds of things as well. So there's this thread that runs all the way through, um, all the way through generations of great theorists and designers that you combine those two things together. And having now had many years of using toothbrushes, what yeah. makes a good toothbrush? I've got an electric one now, like everyone <laughs> else, sadly, which isn't that good looking, if I'm honest. So yeah, that, that, that slightly falls down. But yeah, th this idea that the things that you come into contact with every day should be tactile and beautiful and somehow enhance it rather than detract from it, I really like. You know, I, I sometimes talk about door handles I'm quite obsessed with door handles, as you know, but you know, I love that quote that the door handle is the handshake of the building. And this idea that it should actually be an amicable greeting when you come into a room rather than sort of a challenging thing. And in the past, I've had doors that just won't open properly. And that drives me completely mad. You know, it's got one function, which is to let you into a room. 
So uh, the idea that a door handle can patinate over time and it's got thousands of hands shaking it and it, it, it bears those gnarls and those scratches that I really like. One of the phrases we use a lot for cubits is jazzy knobs collect dust. Have you come across that before? It was from um, Erno Goldfinger's Manifesto for Living in the Trellic Tower. He, he, like you, shared an obsession with door handles. I've not heard that. And he talked a lot about the height and yeah. con constantly lamenting the fact that door handles are either too high or too low. Okay. Should be at waist. But he made this whole point about a door handle is obviously very functional, allows you to open a door, but it can also be beautiful. And overly designed door handles were not only less beautiful, but they required more upkeep. Okay. Especially in a place like a kitchen. Yeah. So he came with this little phrase, jazzy knobs collect dust, which always stuck with me. It's very good. I, I mean, so my wife, Faye, Faye Tugard, who's a designer, she's designed some door furniture. So we have some of that at home. So our, our, our cupboards contain all of our clothes. They're opened with cast bronze stones. So she went mudlarking down by the Thames and she found a load of stuff uh, and she, she cast it into this amazing collection. So on our front door, we have a, a little skull. I don't know what animal it is, but it's you know a small skull that you, that you knock the door with. Uh, and that carries through all the way through the house. But um, I really like coming into contact with these stones every morning as I open the cupboards, get my clothes out. It feels like a sort of secondhand connection to nature somehow. And I also like the idea that over time they will, you know, they will shine where you shake them. Um, you know, that's really nice as well, I think. And I guess that little skull is a constant reminder of our own mortality. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, yeah. It's quite macabre. But pretty much every house we've had for the last 15, 20 years has had a skull on the front door. So there's certain, I mean, if you were to walk down Canterbury Grove in Islington, for example, you would see a skull on one of the doors there. Um, I think it's still there. <laughs> you mentioned um, when you were talking, you mentioned Walter Gropius and obviously, you know, the founder of the Bauhaus and the, I guess the impact that the Bauhaus has had on the way people think about living their lives. What do you think of this idea of, of a home, a house being a machine to live in? Yeah, that's a tough one, isn't it? I, I think you have to put that in context. I mean, I think Le Corbusier, who obviously said that, um, was a very divisive figure. But ultimately, modernism was a reaction to what went before. And I think that it's, I suppose I see that as a sort of manifesto kind of a statement, but I don't actually think that nowadays we really would live like that. Well, some people do, but I personally wouldn't. Um, what I love about modernism, I suppose, is, is, is the way that it opened up space for us because, you know, new innovations in concrete and steel and glass meant we could have much more open floor plates. It allows us to live with a lot more natural light than maybe we did before, to connect to the outside world more than we did before. So those elements of modernism, I, you know, obviously I'm a massive fan of and, and you know, sort of built a career on it in a way. But I, I, th I think that this idea of your living space being a kind of clinical thing, I don't really go along with. I think it has to be about comfort and those kind of basic needs. <laughs> rather than, I, I suppose I would see a, a machine as being something that's perhaps a little bit more applicable to a medical environment or something like that, or indeed this environment that we're in now. Um, but I, I, th I think a home for me is about um, all of the centers, about sights and sounds and smells, and that's what makes a home for me. It's like the sound of the dog scratching at the door, or it's the way that the light falls across the kitchen in the morning when I come downstairs, those sorts of things. I don't think that's very machine-like. And I guess, do you think 
what a, a critique of modernism was that it could lead to a kind of cold, unwelcoming, austere environment. Do you think you can create a home within a modernist framework? Yeah, and I think I think it's just about taking the right elements of it. So I think if you look at any successful living space going right back through history, I would say that the the kind of the, the same principles apply to that success. So it is it is about the way that the light is mediated and it is about you know the the way it connects to nature. It is about the materiality of it, I suppose. So I think those things, yes. But I think um, if you take the kind of the great modernist buildings, things like Philip Johnson's Glass House or Mies van der Rohe's Farnsworth House, those are sort of deliberately extreme and provocative. You know, they're almost entirely glazed. They've got flat roofs. They're almost completely open. I'm not sure that I could live like that with that level of transparency and openness. Um, I think we need more privacy than that. By the way, I, do, I interviewed John Pawson, who's obviously the kind of godfather of minimalist architecture. And he said that Farnsworth House is his favorite building. And I asked him, would you want to live in it? And he said, oh, I had a heartbeat. And I thought that was so interesting because, I mean, I, you know, he, I suppose he, at least he kind of lives what he extols. But I, I think personally, I would find it very challenging to live in a building like that. Um, I don't particularly like that idea of I suppose uh, being being quite so open to what's going on outside, especially at night time. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I think that that those feelings of kind of safety and security and comfort are quite important in the home. And I, I suppose I believe in big spaces combined with small spaces that allow you to take refuge a bit more than that. So you like a little bit of privacy. I like it. Well, don't I mean? Doesn't everyone? Maybe maybe everyone doesn't. I, I, I'm an introvert, so yeah, I, I need like I need quiet, you know, sometimes quite contained spaces to be able to recharge my energy. Yeah. What do you think of the term minimalism? Well, well, actually, getting back to John Paulson, I asked him that, mm -hmm. and and given that he's sort of seen as the great practitioner of it, I was quite intrigued to 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 know that he he he's kind of all for it. So that's sort of good enough for me. I, I love, you know, I suppose I, I, th I do, I think I am a reducer. I think I'm an editor. I think my, my job in a way has always been about editing. I think the success of The Modern House is because Albert and I have had a point of view and edit over the property market uh, and over the way that, you know, what's contributed to a successful living space. And I think the same is probably true at home as well. So I, I probably would tend to live in a more minimal way than than my wife would for example and we find a sort of slightly unhappy medium and i guess in your own home do you have any like practical quirks in the way you kind of arrange the space or live your life i'm quite i'm quite yes i mean i'm relatively obsessive at home like a lot of people are i have a thing about i have a thing about like curtains and blinds if i'm honest so um at in our bedroom, we not only have blackout blinds, we also have interlined curtains. So there's a kind of double whammy barrier against light in the morning. Cause I, I personally, I, I, I just, I'm not that good at sleeping always, or I haven't been traditionally. So being woken up by the sun coming up, I find a little frustrating. So there's that, so there's quite a lot of sort of routine goes on around 
winding down in the evening, you know, making sure that there's no, literally not a sliver of a crack in the curtains, reading my Kindle, trying to kind of calm the brain down. Though that's my sort of, um, I suppose that's where sort of routine compulsion comes in for me. And tell us about your home, what's inside it. Do you collect objects, and if so, what? Um, I think this. I think the objects in my home are the, the most important things to me. Are those things that have some sort of physical connection to somebody else? Um, so one of my favourite things is this old lustreware jug that I inherited from my parents, and. Uh, the handle's fallen off millions of times and it's, you know, my dad would have stuck it together with sellotape. So I've still got bits of old sellotape holding the handle on. And it's not a particularly special lustreware jug, but because it's slightly makeshift, it reminds me of him. Because that's kind of what he was like. So, so I suppose, you know, it's, it's those sort of emotional connections to things, I think. Artworks that Faye might have given me over the years or vice versa. Um, that my kids are forever thrusting things into my palm, you know, like little things that they've made or drawings they've done. It was my birthday yesterday and it was so sweet. I got given all sorts of beautiful paintings and drawings. And so those things are really special. I don't particularly obsess over furniture. I'm probably not the person that would buy, you know, the right Eames chair or whatever. Um, that's that. I would, I would, I suppose, um, I suppose my favorite type of furniture would probably be a Windsor chair, mm -hmm. you know, a nice old English Windsor chair that's really kind of slightly wobbly and, and sort of beaten up. And, um, you know, you can tell that it's been sat by a lot of far sides over the years. I quite like that. Do you, do you, do you have a favorite designer? Um, crikey. That's a hard one, isn't it? Well, I'm going to cheat a bit and, and give a plug to my grandfather here because my, my grandfather Frederick Gibbard was a he was a he was a um, an architect and landscape designer, and his house in Harlow in Essex is open to the public. After he died, it went into a trust called the Gibbard Garden Trust, and you can go visit the house and the garden. and It's I really recommend it. It's fantastic. But it's a it's a amazing sculpture garden that he put together over the last thirty years or so of his life, and he was friends with um, lots of artists and sculptors, and he. He, he put some of their artworks around the garden. And then when he redesigned Coote's Bank on the Strand, uh, he decided to take the original Nash neoclassical columns off the facade and put them in his garden <laughs> and replace it with the kind of, it, with the sort of glass atrium that's on Coote's Bank at the moment. So that as a, as a child, that was very memorable. And I think he taught me that connection between a house and a landscape and why that's sort of an important thing. Uh, and then when I was a teenager, my dad took me up to Liverpool to see the uh, Metropolitan Cathedral, which my grandfather designed, um, a.k.a. Paddy's Wigwam. And that is, I mean, I'm hugely biased, but I think it's, it's one of the great modern buildings in this country. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's my, it's my, I mean, I certainly, I suppose I've, I find ecclesiastical buildings quite emotional anyway, but when your grandfather designed it, and you walk into this space and it and it has that sort of um i don't know the way it captures the light um really moved me a lot um and again i think if anyone hasn't been to that cathedral in liverpool i'd really recommend it and what's great as well as there's the there's also the the um the other cathedral um you know sort of facing off across the city against it and i really like that juxtaposition as well so you can kind of go and visit both and get a very different spatial experience from them both would you say it's because of your 
grandfather you're doing what you do now? I think it's my grandfather and my dad, I suppose. Um, my grandfather died when I was about six, I think, something like that. Um, but, I mean, I'm sure it's same, the same for lots of families. If, if you have someone uh, within your family who has sort of achieved, um, in inverted commas, success, it, it does, it does, it does galvanise you. I think in an indirect way. You know, it's, it's not like I was able to particularly learn anything from him at the age of five or six that I'd carried through. But I think his presence and visiting his buildings and talking to people about him and talking to my parents about him, yeah, it's it's a it's an extra layer of something, definitely. Are there any objects that you've lost or broken or misplaced that you? mourn over all right well i'll tell you what i did have something stolen i was three years old i think our family home got burgled and i came downstairs and i looked around and i realized that these people had stolen my little toy car that i rode around on it was one of those ones that you could sit on and ride around on and my aforementioned grandfather had a had a, a a beautiful black vintage Rolls Royce that he drove around in, which I thought was the kind of height of fashion. Um, so I I used to call this little car my Rolls Royce. So my parents came down and I and I was I was very upset about this and I said a hamburglar has stolen my Rolls Royce, <laughs> Rolls Royce, and that yeah that's probably the thing that's emotionally affected me the most over the years. I don't get massively attached to things. I've got to be honest, unless as I said, unless unless someone you know, it's, unless it's a kind of family heirloom, you know, or something my kids have given me, I think it's a replaceable thing. I mean, we're, Faye and I had a, had actually had a fire in an outbuilding a few years ago, and we lost quite a lot of stuff, and that was that was really that was actually emotionally very affecting. Um, that was really really hard, I must say. But I think it was less for the things in it, mm -hmm. and more the idea that something that you've created can just be taken away that quickly that's actually really difficult to to go through your Rolls Royce was never never found never recovered can you believe it discovered burnt out on an industrial estate <laughs> this, is it. this is it who steals a child's <laughs> toy car I mean really um we'll talk about your objects shortly one thing I noticed that they're all black is there a particular reason that you live a particularly muted color palated life yeah i obviously i i i'd sort of noticed that as well and i think it i think it is coincidental i mean i like to think it's coincidental but it probably isn't i do, i do wear black quite a lot simply because it's kind of practical and it sort of works with everything i mean i can see that you're a fan as well by the way same palette well done <laughs> but i think yeah i suppose i like everyone else i think in the last few years i've i i, I guess i've kind of rediscovered color a little bit more so i think this is a bit of an anomaly um but indigo my 10 year old if you asked her she'd say her favorite color was black so she's clearly been influenced somewhere right let's go to your object okay so let's go to your first object match we we'll start with your bag yeah so i've brought my um patagonia rucksack mm -hmm. which is something that i've had for probably six or seven years, Faye gave it to me actually. You know, we talk about something being sort of utilitarian and kind of beautiful to use, I suppose. This bag 
I mean, it's it's so comfortable. First of all, it's got very wide straps on it, and it's also got the the, the you know the straps that wrap around your waist and your chest. So if you're walking for quite a long time, like I often do, it's really um, very um, comfortable to wear. Um, I use it for work because it's kind of stealthy and it's sort of nondescript, right? Black bag, no one can kind of complain about that. Um, but I also use it a lot with the kids and the family, and especially I did during lockdown. So this 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 bag reminds me a huge amount of um, our experiences then. So just to rewind a bit, um, at the time when the first lockdown hit, we were living sort of between moves, um, and we were in a, a flat, and we had um, Indigo was six, turning seven, and then our twins Ren and Netta were were potty training. So we were in this quite constrained environment with two two children potty training and the other one of course homeschooling and like like a lot of people that you know it really i suppose it really sort of highlighted um the restraints around your living environment um so what we decided to do was every day do the home homeschooling get out get out of the way and then just get outside in the countryside for a walk faye's got these kind of mess tins right and we would make a, you know, make some sandwiches or some pesto pasta or something, stick it in the mess tin, put that in the rucksack with a with a picnic blanket or something like that, and just just get out of the countryside. I mean, you'll you'll remember that the weather was amazing actually, wasn't it, during the whole kind of yeah. first COVID period. So that was the the small blessing that we could all get outside a lot. Um, so this this bag has been on so many walks and adventures. At one point, I floated it down a river, down the River Dart in Devon. Because the key point about it is it's completely waterproof. And I love that because if I'm coming to a meeting in London and it's pouring down with rain, I kind of just don't have to worry about my laptop inside or some paperwork inside. But also the idea that if you need to, and it happens a lot, if you need to traverse a river, you can do it. I, I, you know, I've, I've confirmed you can do it. So yeah, I, I, it's, it's, just, it's just a very trusty companion. It works really, really well. Faye very sweetly bought me a Sandfist bag at Christmas. I think because you were trying to imply that it maybe is a bit smarter for work or something like that. It's, it's been in the cupboard. I, I just honestly haven't used it once. I think it's still got the tag on it, which I feel bad about. But this is, I just think this is more practical. And, and what do you think about it aesthetically, purely as a visual object? Well, as a visual object, I mean, what's quite good about it is it's pretty nondescript, mm -hmm. right? I don't think, you know, no one could be offended by it, yeah? I think. But also, I quite like the fact that you can sort of hang bits off it. So I've got a torch here. Uh, this is one of Faye's key rings. This is a key ring that um, Indigo made for me. This is our dog's bowl. So we've got a little whippet called Moss. And, you know, if we go out to the pub or something like that, I've just got a little water bowl for her or off on a walk. So I suppose, yeah, I like the fact that you can hang bits off it. But I, I don't know. It's, it's, it, I think inoffensive is the word. Don't you think? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, oh yeah, and hang my hat off it as well. So this is a baseball cap that I got from the Notre VDL House Museum in Silver Lake in LA. Um, it was such a good house that I had to, I had to have the hat as a memento. And actually, I've ended up wearing it quite a lot. So that hangs off it as well sometimes. Thank uh, you, Matt. No worries. Could you tell us about your second item? Yeah. So my second item is my watch, which is a late 1960s Hoya Carrera. Um, now, the reason I suppose this is important to me is because um, my first job out of university 
well, when I left university, like, my, like a lot of people, I thought, what the hell am I going to do? And I'd always been attracted by the idea of design and architecture magazines. So Albert Hill, who's my business partner now, and has been a friend for many years, um, he and I went to the local news agent and we picked up every magazine we could find that had the picture of a house or something designy on the cover and looked inside and looked at the masthead and basically noted, I, I noted down the little book, the name of the editor or the most appropriate person that will want, one would want to send a begging letter to, okay? So I sent, a, about, I think it was about 25 letters out to, you know, the editors of Wallpaper and House and Garden and so on and so forth. And the editor of World of Interiors happened to just be leaving. Her name was Min Hogg. Uh, and a new chap, Rupert Thomas, was taking over. And Rupert, to his eternal credit, gave me a ring and just said, I got your letter. I'm taking it. Well, I, I'm temporary editor for the moment. I kind of need all the help I can get. Come in and do some work experience. So I did. And I spent six months fetching tea, making toast, reorganizing the library 50 times, sorts of things that you do. But one of the things they got me doing was they said, we're gonna send you out on a little mission um, to go to all the design shops and find out what new products they've got. So I spent a whole day walking around, mainly kind of West London, um, Kings Road, etc., going into shops and chatting to them about it. And I walked past, past this shop, which was a watch shop. I think it was on Westbourne Grove. And in the window was this watch. I don't know, I don't know, sometimes something just grabs you, doesn't it? It grabs your attention. I'm not, I, I can't really explain to you why, but I looked at this watch and it was one of those things where I thought, I'd love to have the means to own that watch. So I thought really no more about it. But then fast forward a bit longer and um, Rupert decided that he didn't mind having me around. Um, so so um, kindly gave me a permanent job and I started earning some money. And um, I returned to that watch in my head and I thought, Do you know what? I'm gonna use one of my very first paychecks because I was lucky enough to be living at home still. So I wasn't paying the rent on this, on this thing to kind of commemorate this moment and it, I suppose for me, it also reminds me of, of my sort of um, love affair with Faye because this is around the time when she and I had first met at the magazine and there was sort of electricity there. And I mean, Faye's never been one to, to shirk a shopping opportunity. So I remember her very much encouraging me to, to make, you know, frankly, what was for me quite an out of character purchase. But, but the great thing is, it's, you know, this, that's what 25 or more than 25 years ago. And I still really like it. And actually I don't wear it every day because it's sort of a bit too precious for that. But what I like is it's, 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 it is quite utilitarian. It's quite, it's relatively small, which I like. I'm not a fan of a, like a massive fat men's watch. I wind up in the morning, which is kind of fun. And I like the ritual of that. Yeah. And if, you, if you've forgotten to wind it up, does it? Does it play on you? I don't forget things like that. <laughs> no, I know it sounds I'm funny, but that, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I, it gets back to what I was saying about the kind of nighttime routine. Yeah. I, I sort of have, I kind of have a skeletrics track to my evenings and my mornings. And I just know 
when I pick this up off the bedside table, I'll wind up then and put it on. And do you always keep it in the same spot? So to be honest, something quite often lives in the safe. Because, you know, I, I, I probably will wear this if um, I'm coming to meet someone glamorous like you. Or if, I don't know, if I'm going to a bit of a do or something like that. But I, 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 I won't wear it every day just because actually if it gets very wet, probably not very good yeah. for it. So I have, I did at one point break it. You know, I was cycling and it got really wet in a rainstorm. And I sent it off to be repaired. And they had it for a year. And from about six months onwards, I checked in quite regularly to find out what was happening with the watch. And after a year, they confessed that they lost it. And I, I'm, not, I'm not hugely prone to emotional outbursts, but I must admit, I was a bit sad about that. And I let them know that I was a bit sad about that. And um, it kind of made me realize actually how attached to it I was. Uh, and very luckily, a few months later, they phoned back to say that they'd found it. I don't know where, what they'd done with it, but anyway, it's back. So that's sort of another reason why it kind of, I, I, try, and, I try and keep it locked up when I'm not using it. And obviously you were burnt by your car experience age three as well, so. This is, this is exactly it. Um, is exactly it. I do think there's a, there's a funny parallel, because my first ever paycheck, proper grown-up paycheck, I bought a pair of glasses. Did you? Some grown-up glasses, yeah. Age 20, probably. What were they like? Uh, I still got them. They're a pair of Cutler & Gross 692s. So they're like um, shallow rectangular frames with a, called a, li a, a library side, like 12 millimeter side. They're really heavy. Another time I thought they were like, this was the most outlandish purchase you could ever make. Yeah. I thought I was yeah, the sort of coolest person wandering around Leicester in these, in these frames. And they, 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 sat in my, they sit in my drawer at work and I look at them every so often. But again, similar to you, I think that, that, that process of putting glasses on and off and cleaning them is, is part of like a, a daily ritual. And the first thing I do every morning is grab them, try and find a cleaning cloth and polish the lenses. Well, yeah, I mean, to give Cubits a plug, I've got, I'm very, very keen on my um, cleaning cloth that I have, the David Shrigley one, the pink one. And anyone who works with me will know that during board meetings and things like that, this, this lens cloth comes out and sort of gets kind of caressed and put into different positions. And as a sort of, I kind of play with it, fiddle with it. But I, I, love, a, I love a cleaning a lens cloth, an amazing thing. So yeah, so thanks to you, I always have one in my pocket. I'm not going to get one out of state because <laughs> I've got a Cutler and Gross one. <laughs> Sorry about that. And just tell us about the watching a bit, bit more. Like, why aesthetically was it drawn to you? I like the fact it doesn't have any numbers on it. Yeah. I like a watch without numbers. But also, I, I don't particularly like kind of conceptual watches where, you know, they've missed out some of the numbers or, you know, things like that. Or there, or there, are, there are literally no marks to tell you where, where the minute or hour hand actually is. Um, it's got a chronograph, um, but it, you would never use it. I mean, it's hopeless. The tiny little dials on there, you'd never use that. But I quite like this sort of trio of buttons. Mm -hmm. um, I like the symmetry of that. And I like the fact that it's got a, a dark face with a, with a, with a sort of off-white um, band around it. I think, it, I, think that, I like that contrast of black and white. Um, and then I also like having a brown strap with a black watch face. There's something about that for me. So yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the, I, I quite like watches in general and it's not the only watch that I would think was a beautiful object, but I, I, I suppose what I like about this is, is that 
I bought it so many years ago yeah. and yet I still feel I'm actually happy to wear it. I can't think of anything else that I have that's like that. Um, and I think that's the joy of classical design. And you talked about minimalism. I suppose when you reduce something to its essentials, you're much more likely to feel like it works in future generations that have a longevity to it. I mean, Adolf Luz, I think the reason he talked about ornament being crime was because he felt like something was overly ornamental would date badly and would have to be replaced. And I actually do agree with that. I think it, obviously it's quite controversial this idea that ornament is crime and I don't necessarily subscribe to that notion, especially within the home. But I do like this idea that actually if you, if you boil something down to the very essence of what it needs to be, I think you're much more likely to persevere with it and keep it. And lastly, on the subject, what, what's the point of a, a watch? How do you see a watch? How does it fit into your life? Well, this is the problem, isn't it? Because we all have phones. We can always just get the phone out. So obviously it's a combination of timekeeping, but also a sort of stylistic intent, right? Um, so I guess I see it now, a sort of form of ritual, like we talked about, a, a, you know, a fashion accessory, frankly. You know, if I, if I wear this watch, because it's black, I probably wouldn't wear it if I was wearing something like, um, you know, I mostly wear um, Faye's, you know, fashion label, Too Good. And it's kind of a uniform and you tend to do sort of all black or all off-white or, you know, it's a kind of monoblock thing. And if I was to wear white, I just don't think, I think that would just kind of stand out too much. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for showing us your second object. So we're now going to go on to your third and final object. Yeah, so the third and final one is is the jacket that I'm wearing. So it comes from Too Good, which is my wife Faye Too Good's fashion label. Uh, it's called a photographer jacket. And all of the clothes that she makes are based on trades. So you, you would have, let's say, a milkman jacket, or you would have, there's one called the Explorer. Uh, there's, there's some baker trousers, things like that. This is the photographer jacket because it has these really outsized pockets on it. And the idea is the photographer can keep their lenses in it and their bits and bobs, which they always have. But you know, obviously that's a bit of a conceit, but it's actually, I mean, I think they're probably about 15 collections, 16 collections down now. And since day one, this has been their best selling jacket. And they've done it in all sorts of finishes. This is just in a, in a black cotton. I have it in other colors as well. But I suppose what I like about this jacket, I mean, I'll come on to the kind of emotional side of it, but on a practical level, a jacket has a formality to it, right? But I think when you wear a jacket that's quite unstructured and slightly overly long and oversized and I've rolled up the sleeves and so on, it sort of breaks down that barrier a bit and you can wear it with whatever you want, jeans, you know, jeans or whatever else. Again, it's black, we talked about black, but um, it kind of goes with a lot of things which is useful. So I end up picking it out of the wardrobe quite a lot. But yes, I suppose to, to talk more about, um, about Faye, you know, I, I love the fact that my wife was part of designing this garment and I can, I can wear that and I can celebrate that. You know, it's, I think it's incredible that someone can come up with a piece of clothing that is I suppose something that hasn't gone before. I mean, when we've been designing clothing for so many, so many years, I, I find that amazing. But basically it's, it's a collaboration between Faye and her sister, Erica. 
So Erica is Erica trained in fashion. She's a pattern cutter. So the shape making is a lot to do with Erica. And then in all of their garments, they have what they call a passport. So rather than a conventional label, they have a quite a big um, passport. And on that passport, it tells you the initials of all the people that were involved in making it, which I think is really great. And then it, at the bottom, it says worn by colon, and you can write in your own initials. So my initials are written on the passport. Um, and then I like to think that I can hand this down to one of my daughters or to a friend or to whoever else, and they can then put their initials in it. So that's the idea. There's a kind of, there's a sort of, yeah, you, you could follow the line of creation and ownership. Um, and this idea that, a, a, you know, a, a fashion item should have longevity to it, I think is really important. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a great privilege because twice a year, uh, Faye gives me a line sheet and a PDF with photographs on it. And I go through and I, I pick out a load of clothes that I think I would like to wear for the upcoming six months or so. And, um, you know, I kind of order some stuff and then forget all about it. And then at some point they arrive in the post. It's a very exciting day and try it all on. So as a result, I kind of don't really have to think that much about what I wear because it all, because it's from one place, it all works together. I kind of like that back to the utilitarian thing of not having to think too hard about it. It is a uniform of sorts, I suppose. But obviously the fact that um, someone that I love deeply has, has kind of created it is, is um, yeah, that, that's, I think that's, that, that's definitely an extra layer to it. But yeah, because Erica, her sister, is obviously also heavily involved, um, it's quite amusing when we go out as a family because we'll all be wearing the same kind of stuff. Uh, so we go to the pub looking like some very strange cult, I must admit. And... Faye's parents, bless them, Alan's about six foot five and Jan's about four foot nine. Um, and they're all clad in this stuff as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, we definitely get a few looks, I think. But um, I, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really kind of proud of everything that they've done. I think it's amazing. And I'm, you know, I try and support wherever I can. But yeah, and we also live with Faye's um, furniture at home as well. So she designed a chair called the roly-poly chair, which is, which has really struck a chord with people and you sort of see it everywhere now. Uh, and we've got a, a one that's made of solid glass that she, it's kind of a museum piece really. It's a limited edition. Uh, so it's solid glass, takes six months to cure, <laughs> takes about five men to lift. So we have one of those in the house. We've got an amazing wooden coffee table that she's made that looks like it was, you know, from an archeological dig or something. It's made of oak um, with a shellac finish on it. And all sorts of other things as well. So I, 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 you know, I'm always amazed by people that have that level of creativity. You know, I'm really admiring of that because I think of myself. I, mean, I don't know how you feel. You, you are, but I, I think of myself more as a editor, curator kind of a person, rather than necessarily the person that's, you know, really got that level of creativity and innovation in the first place. In a way, you know, I, I, I suppose I like to kind of refine things and provide a provide us a point of view on something um but Faye genuinely wakes up with a hundred different ideas every morning and I find that kind of amazing and do you feel when you're wearing that you feel more like a, a photographer <laughs> I don't know do I want to be a photographer <laughs> you know what I know a lot of photographers funnily enough and I think they'd all be pretty happy to wear one of these and you know that's kind of the point of the of, of the whole collection in the first place was that Faye and Erica set out to dress their friends mm -hmm. 
so we've got a photographer friend called Tobias Harvey. He's kind of, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a big eccentric guy, fantastic guy. And, you know, and he, he, he looked, you know, this is, this is very him, this jacket, it's kind of oversized. Um, it's slightly chaotic, you know, the, the, there's no, there's no real structure to these pockets. You can bung things in them, you know, and yet there's also an architect shirt, right? Which he designed for her architect friends. Mm -hmm. And that's much more structured and it's a collarless shirt that buttons up to the top, you know, so you can, you can find your identity within the collection. And what's going to be the next vocation? Yeah, exactly. They've already done Tinker. I mean, yeah, I, I think they're probably running out. I don't know. The road sweeper, who knows? And what do you keep in the pockets? Oh yeah, you put me on the spot there. At the moment, just a microphone. I probably would have uh, some keys, headphones, handkerchief, that sort of thing. I mean, this is the joy. You can just, you could lob stuff in. Books, I carry books around sometimes. Yeah, if I, was, I was on the tube this morning with the book stuffed into it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. You just don't have to worry about it. And, it, and for whatever reason, it doesn't, if you put things in these pockets, you don't feel weighed down. They kind of have enough support. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.